You're listening to the Healthcare Innovators Podcast. Welcome to the 30th episode of the Healthcare Innovators Podcast with your host, Dr. Travis Good. In today's segment, we have Dr. Aaron Neinstein, an assistant professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. As the director of clinical informatics in the UCSF Center for Digital Health Innovation, we asked Dr. Neinstein about today's topic, emerging healthcare data challenges from patient-centric technologies. In early June, mHealth Intelligence wrote about a recent Ericsson study about patient-generated health data. That article indicated that the increase of this type of collected data now has industry stakeholders, suggesting that healthcare will adapt to this trend. That hasn't always been the case. Um, I mean, you've been in the industry long enough, Aaron, to, to know that we've been talking about you know people's use of health apps for, for six, seven, eight, ten years. Um, but have you recently seen uh, a change in the industry in terms of openness to patient-generated data, maybe a tipping point? So I don't know if, you know, it's a great question. I don't know if there is a tipping point yet. I think there are a lot of things are changing on the ground that are opening up the gates more to use of patient-generated health data. So, you know, I think one, one thing is just overall consumer demand and interest is increasing. More and more people have smartphones, more and more people have broadband, although, you know, still there's about uh, 35 million Americans without broadband and maybe... Uh, 35% or so of Americans who don't have smartphones. Um, but so I think we're seeing more saturation uh, of the consumer market with, with the opportunity to collect data. Uh, they're also wearing more and more wearable devices. Uh, a big thing is more incentives from the payers. So over the last two years, we've seen the introduction of the Medicare chronic care management codes, uh, which create the opportunity for uh, for payment for use of, of things like patient-generated health data. So what those codes do is allow you to bill uh, on a monthly, ongoing basis for um, taking care of a patient who has two or more chronic diseases. So you could theoretically have a, a nurse or someone else on your staff managing the patient remotely and be billing for that time. Um, they're also, you know, Formerly Meaningful Use 3, which now been sort of folded into the MIPS measures, there are some optional measures around um, patient-generated health data and use of modules that collect patient-generated health data. So I think some movement from, from at least the you know, government side of payers um, and pushing towards commercial payers for incentivizing uh, use of this data. I think also you know, some of the healthcare organizations at the tip of the spear are, are viewing this as important work and are trying things out. So you're seeing places like Oxner, which has, has sort of made famous their OBAR, uh, which is a place where patients can come and get connected to devices and they can help them get set up there. Uh, Sutter Health has done a lot of studies uh, connecting home glucose monitors, home blood pressure uh, meters and things like that. Um, and we're actually seeing an emergence of some data suggesting that patient-generated health data can be useful. There was actually a big stir um, about a month or two ago raised uh, after the big oncology conference when uh, um, Bash and, and colleagues released a study from Memorial Sloan Kettering. It was actually a study they had published about a year and a half ago, but they wrote an update uh, and a research letter what, what they basically did is from 07 to 2011, 
they took a group of patients with metastatic cancer, um, and ultimately, actually, only about 75% of the patients survived one year. So this is a pretty sick group of patients. And they gave uh, the experimental group the opportunity to communicate their symptoms to nurses on staff at their oncology clinic uh, via sort of like a web reporting tool. And when they reanalyzed their data, they actually saw that they, compared to the control group, overall survival in the treatment group went up from 26 months to 31 months. So there was actually a big splash uh, when this data was presented showing that an increase in five months, um, you know, again, 31 months compared to 26 months for people who were using uh, web reporting of their symptoms to their nurses. And so the nurses were responding uh, to, the, to the symptoms that patients were having, helping them you know, treat their side effects from the chemotherapies, probably stay on the chemotherapy longer, and overall just just feel better. So I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things happening that are starting to move things in the right direction. There's still a lot of a lot of barriers and a lot of work to be done. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's interesting. I, I actually hadn't seen that study. I may follow up with you uh, <laughs> to get a link to that. I'd like to see, or at least the the research letter. Uh, update because that does sound um, like a pretty impressive um, piece of evidence. Um, something that you alluded to, uh, they talk about in the in the study I, I mentioned initially, the Erickson study, where half of the respondents in that study talked about smartphones, wearables, and apps um, uh, empowering some change in healthcare or empowering consumers to push for changes in healthcare. Um, you talked a little bit about sort of changing uh, demand and expectations. You talked about, you know, some of the federal incentives as well. But in your practice, are you seeing some of this? I think I probably have the front row seat to to people doing this. So, I, you know, I have a unique practice in that uh, I'm in San Francisco and I take care of people with diabetes, particularly type 1 diabetes. So I, I have to say I tend to attract people who have type 1 diabetes, who use a lot of technology, who work in the technology industry and who are who are you know push both pushing for change and developing things themselves. So I I think I'm very fortunate to have to have that kind of a front row seat. So so absolutely. I mean certainly in the diabetes space there has been over the last five to six years a huge groundswell of people pushing for change um, in in the use of patient generated health data and in in consumer-driven technologies. So, you know, there are people who have been at this for decades. Some of the names, you know, Scott Hanselman, Anna McAllister Slip, if if people want to go look them up on, on Twitter or or read about them, have, have really been leading this community for a long time. But it, it really, in the last five or six years, it picked up steam. And so, I, you know, I even have patients show up in my office. I don't know if you've heard about the open artificial pancreas movement, open mm -hmm. APS. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I now have probably three or four patients who are running an open source artificial pancreas, um, including people who are actually uh, developing software for it. So not just using it, but developing for it. And so, you know, I'm in the in the unique seat of, of sitting in my clinic and having a patient show me that they're using software that m nobody in the world may have ever used before. Um, so yes, absolutely, patients are are pushing for it. You know, another great opportunity uh, I've had the uh, the pleasure to be a part of is a, a nonprofit called Tidepool, which again started about five six years ago. Um, uh, it's sort of a team of endocrinologists at UCSF in collaboration with patients and parents of people with type one diabetes. So we're really fortunate to be led by Howard Look, whose daughter had developed type one diabetes. Um, 
And you know, Tidepool created an open source cloud platform to to aggregate data um, from diabetes devices. And there were there have really been so many um, so many efforts: the Night Scout community, the open artificial pancreas community that we talked about. And so this engaged diabetes community has uh, has really been a key driver. And you know, there are there are other communities um, for other disease types. I think patients like me has started to collect and, and create a lot of those communities. Um, other social media tools, you know, Facebook and Twitter have allowed those communities to emerge. Um, and one thing that, you know, I'll point out that's been particularly encouraging is the willingness of the FDA to engage with these communities. So we actually saw uh, just this week, there's a, um, an award uh, that you can vote on online for uh, government um, workers who have done something particularly notable in service of the country. And I think there's about a dozen people who are nominated for it. And two of them are the FDA leaders who have helped uh, sort of manage and and push forward the, the diabetes digital technologies, including the artificial pancreas, which are Stacy Beck and Courtney Leas. And they've really moved the FDA uh, a long way from where people tend to think of it. So um, uh, absolutely, patients are, are contributing a huge amount. Uh, it seems to be out ahead. There are obviously a lot of other chronic conditions uh, that people suffer from uh, where we could improve care in the U.S. Do you see, and, and you mentioned patients like me, and you could think of companies like Chronology focused on Crohn's and some other conditions. Um, do you see other communities almost using diabetes as a model? And do you see diabetes in some ways as, as a, a heavily repeatable model that other people can can kind of emulate with technology and services around that technology? Yeah, I think I think it's repeatable. I think one place in particular we're seeing a lot of similarities to diabetes is with asthma. So if you think about you know capturing the the action and activity that a patient takes in the normal course of the day, because that's really what we're talking about here is these are chronic diseases where you know coming in for an office visit three or four times a year allows a really really narrow snapshot of what's happening in somebody's life and so the the reason we care about patient generated health data is it you know in theory gives us the opportunity to see what somebody is doing day to day 24/7 365 in the in the context of their life and help them uh, tweak their their treatment regimen or change their behavior to improve the management of their chronic disease so that's really what we're talking about here. And if you think about what types of chronic diseases are, are prevalent and uh, where they're analogous to diabetes, so you think about heart failure, you think about asthma, um, you can think about IBD. And asthma, I think, is, is certainly analogous. I and mean, we're seeing companies create the um, Bluetooth-connected caps to the inhalers that allow them to capture a data point every time somebody uses their asthma inhaler which again, very analogous to diabetes, where every time you check a blood sugar or now with uh, smart insulin pens that it will be coming out this year, every time you dose yourself with insulin, that's a data point that's connected and allows us to have some insight. I think what separates diabetes from some other diseases and you know, what will progress over time is you know again with diabetes and asthma, there's data points that are already being collected, and there are data points that are pretty reliable. So a blood sugar, a push of an asthma inhaler is a pretty reliable data point 
that someone's already collecting. You're not asking them to do something extra. And uh, so you can create sort of a feedback loop with that data point. Not every disease state has that you know, same type of, of data point yet that can be used. So I think um, as we see more reliable sensors come out or uh, validated surveys based on symptoms, you know, maybe for something like IBD, it's about a symptom survey every day uh, and validating that, you'll have those data points that people are collecting at home that can be used in the same way we've been doing with diabetes. And it's interesting to think about how large the data set becomes when you talk about all these individual data points from a glucometer, when you start to think about, you know, many of these patients having, um, uh, having multiple conditions, right? And so collecting data yeah. from, uh, you know, home blood pressures and, um, you know, and their, their, the amount of insulin they're giving themselves and, you know, all these other pieces that are sort of interrelated. Um, how do you think about, you know, delivering some level of decision support and making decisions on that data when, you know, you, you may be collecting for one of their conditions and not others. And, and it doesn't give you maybe that whole picture. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that evolves as well. And, you know, it's, a, it's about to get even bigger because I think one of the things people don't think about is how many different categories of patient-generated health data there actually are. So if you, if you really if you really break it down, you're talking about at least, you know, seven or eight categories of, of things that comprise what we now call PGHD. So you have you know, things that are really regulated medical devices like continuous glucose monitors or pacemakers. You have things that are, are sort of pseudo medical devices like blood pressure cuffs and weight scales and thermometers. Um, you have consumer health devices like sleep trackers or activity and, and step counters. There are sort of connected health things like you mentioned with, with something like Propeller Health, a smart pill bottle or an asthma inhaler. We have just you know straight consumer IoT devices, so ambient sensors for air quality, which again matter to things like asthma and and other conditions. Uh, you have patient reported outcomes, which we were talking about earlier in in oncology, and you know this could be a big deal in in many conditions in IBD, in multiple sclerosis, uh, people you know managing a symptom diary. There's also ambient tracking. So you know John Brownstein at Harvard likes to talk a lot about digital exhaust. Um, another company that did this very early on was Ginger IO, where you know they're basically taking something you're already doing on your cell phone, the, the circle of people who you're texting and calling and using that data. Uh, there are also people who are just looking at keystroke patterns on your iPhone to to detect your um, physical and neurological state. So there's a, there's a huge number of categories of, of PGHD, and we, you know, in some places can clump them together and in others have to think about them as, as being distinct. I am wondering a little bit about, um, you know, making use of data that's coming from, you know, one to several of these patient-generated health data categories, but also the existence of, you know, today, this this huge clinical data set, which resides within um, the EHR. Um, and so specifically, you know, you, you were involved with the implementation of EPIC uh, EHR at UCSF. And I'm curious how you see EHRs fitting in the future with patient-generated data, um, if, at least in my room, that's the sort of 800-pound gorilla. Um, yeah. And so I am very curious what you think in terms of the roles that the role that an EHR will play. One, in uh, being sort of that hub, continual hub of of data. Now that there's so much additional data that's being generated, and then two, 
um, you know, if it remains sort of the hub of clinical workflows, which it is today, but as workflows start to move outside the office into remote monitoring, do you see that all happening within the EHR? Um, obviously, this is a hard one to predict, but I'm curious to get your take. Well, so I I think it's going to happen because it has to. It's This is really, you know, as somebody who works in, in clinical informatics and as an endocrinologist uh, practicing myself, this, this has to happen because EHRs um, for all, you know, for all of the things good or bad people may say about them, the concept of an EHR is here to stay, right? We're certainly not going back to, to paper records. I think at this point, hopefully everybody can agree on that. And, you know, the question really is about how these different worlds of data are going to combine together and work together because they have to, because patients, again, are not Healthcare doesn't exist only in the office visit, you know, for 15 or 20 minutes every couple of months. It, it occurs 24-7 in people's lives. And so we have to bring those two data sets together. So, you know, if you were to step back and say, what would an ideal EHR do if I designed an EHR today and how would it interact with PGHD? You know, let's think about some of the characteristics. So it would have to aggregate data across institutions, right? So it doesn't make sense if you, Travis, have a blood pressure cuff and you have a primary care doctor in one healthcare organization and either a cardiologist or an endocrinologist at another. It makes no sense for you to send your blood pressure data to your primary care doctor and to not have that flow also to your other providers' EHRs. So it has to work across healthcare uh, system boundaries and, and be patient-centered from that standpoint. It has to be really easy for people to prescribe and manage devices. So this is what Oxner was really working on with the OBAR. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, you have to be able to match a blood pressure cuff that you're using, Travis, to your name in your record in the EHR and make sure that the data that flows across is really yours. So not only uh, at initiating that, that first time that you're using it, but in an ongoing basis. So you know, if you give your blood pressure cuff to a family member who comes over, is their blood pressure now going to be recorded in the EHR as yours? And that, that can create uh, a lot of challenges and problems. Um, you know, it's also a question and, and an issue, as you, as you mentioned before, about lots of new types of data, um, you know, streaming from multiple sources per patient. So if you have diabetes and heart failure and uh, asthma and you're collecting all sorts of different biometrics about yourself and streaming those into a place, that place has to be capable of handling all of that data and taking it in in real time, um, putting it into an analytics framework that can manage it and make sense of it, and ideally enable third-party uh, third party software developers to write algorithms, right, decision support tools that sort of comb through that data and plug in and find the utility in it. So that I think those are some characteristics that an ideal system would have. And I think as we're sort of walking through that list, it's clear that today's EHRs weren't yet designed to do that. So I think a few different things could happen. It could be that the EHR vendors today are able to um, keep adding new features to the systems to, uh, to meet those needs. Um, or it could be that there are third-party layers that kind of sit in between the EHRs and patient-generated health data sources and help um, sort of 
bring the two together and synthesize the two different data sources. And I think it's it's too early to say yet which which of those places we're going to end up in. But I think it's clear that we don't have sufficient um, underlying systems and technologies to deal with with PGHD yet. I am curious if you see uh, any initiatives that are currently ongoing um, or what you think, um, you know, either industry led or, or, you know, public government led different types of initiatives, projects that can maybe help ease the way to sharing and using some of that data. Um, I mean, we, we know you, I'm sure, you know, uh, Dr. Ida Sims at, at UCSF mm -hmm. and, and open M health. Um, there's, you know, obviously fire and other standards emerging from the Argonaut group and, and other things around interoperability. Um, but I am curious kind of what you think will help ease that process. Cause I, I do think it's gonna be a long process and I think there's gonna be a lot of challenges and I'm curious if you're seeing things that you think are going to help that. Well, so I, I hate I hate to say it because it is definitely the buzzword of the year, but I think one of the things that's floating out there as a as a possible way to help this problem over the next ten years is blockchain. Um, I I realize there's a lot of hype around it, um, and we're still completely unsure of where this is going to end up. But in theory, you know, blockchain allows a centralized ledger for data. So that there's a single source of truth that you know could be controlled by the person, by the user, by the patient, um, and so I think there's a lot of theoretical potential. Nobody has really tried this yet or proven it out, and so we're a long way away from that, you know, from that becoming a reality. I think what's also encouraging is a lot of these individual health system pilots. So just the fact that there are more health systems who are trying this, you know, because a lot of this has to do with figuring out the workflows that make patients and providers comfortable and and that you know are feasible and and remove some of the fears around liability. Um, and then you are seeing a big push from, from government and uh, other advocacy groups. So the ONC commissioned a white paper that Accenture did, you know, setting up a, a vision of a model for, tw for 2024 and what the use of patient-generated health data should look like then. And so I think a combination of all of those things, you know, industry, health systems, government, and uh, and digital health innovators are going to, over time, push things in the right direction. I, I still don't see yet what this single, you know, if we're looking for what a single tipping point is, I don't know yet what that's going to be. One of the things that I think is most encouraging and kind of the shift that, that we've seen in the industry over the past two or three years is, is what you mentioned, where it's health systems starting to really think about how they're going to solve this problem and starting to get, in some ways, I perceive it kind of back into the driver's seat and not maybe not allowing vendors to, to, to be in the driver's seat, but, uh, you know, actually driving forward towards what they know the future needs to look like in terms of data exchange. So that, that's one of the things that I see is probably, you know, potentially one of the most exciting things. And, you know, I guess I'm glad you're seeing it too. Um, you, you talked a little bit about sort of analyzing and understanding the clinical and, and, and care workflows and, and how patient-generated data is going to fit or can fit within those. Um, I wonder, you know, I imagine that's that's what, you know, you guys are doing some of that at UCSF. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to how you guys are going about that in terms of testing um, or modeling or researching and kind of discovering, you know, ways where, where patient-generated data can be used today. 
Yeah, there's a lot of efforts ongoing at UCSF. So some of them are centralized and, and some of them are are department-led. So we have several departments that are are doing a lot of work around patient-reported outcomes. Um, and you know, some that, that come to mind are, are Dr. Laura Esserman at the Breast Cancer Center here uh, at UCSF. Um, we have a team at, in urology doing a lot of work around patient-reported outcomes in prostate cancer. And so there are a lot of individuals um, building tools to do this um, sort of disease state by disease state or, or department by department. Um, in a more centralized fashion, we're working on this too. We actually recently set up a new committee at UCSF called Digital Diagnostics and Therapeutics, which you know some people will be familiar with the fact that uh, hospitals have committees called P&T or Pharmacy and Therapeutic Committees that govern what types of drugs are allowed to be prescribed in the hospital, essentially. And so what we're doing is saying, well, in the current, in the modern world, there are digital drugs and digital diagnostics, and how are we going to come together to think about using those at UCSF um, and providing both API connectivity to our systems, but also figuring out which ones are the right ones to use, um, what's safe, what's been validated. And so we're just undertaking that uh, that work now and hoping to see it progress. I think we really covered um, most of what I wanted to cover today. Uh, this has been incredibly <laughs> uh, incredibly cool actually to hear all the stuff that you guys are working on at UCSF um, and get your thoughts you know and, and certainly insights into all the various people that are doing research in this space as well. Um, are there are there any particular things that we didn't touch on that you think are worth uh, talking about? Yeah, I think one or two, one or two things. I think one thing that um, is really important to remember when we're talking about PGHD is I think some people close their eyes and imagine a world where the use of PGHD is like your car uh, going to a mechanic, right? That there's going to be all these sensors hooked up to us and something's going to be monitoring you and it's going to tell you when it's broken and how to fix it. And you know maybe we'll be there in 20 years or 30 years, but but right now what this is really about is feedback loops to people with chronic disease. So what it's really about is for me taking care of people with diabetes. I want to see someone in, in my office, review their information with them, make some you know recommendations to their treatment plan or some changes to their treatment plan, and then rather than sending them back out into the world for three months or four months. And then having them come back and ask them what happened, I want to follow up, you know, 48 hours later or 72 hours later and see the data. You know, did the insulin changes that we made make a difference? And that kind of feedback has a huge impact on people's behavior when you can say, you know, look at that change we made two days ago and look at what a difference it made rather than waiting for months to, to try to guess at what happened. So I think that's it's really important um, to think about feedback loops is all about feedback loops. Another thing that's really important is a, around PGHD is how it gives us more granularity and specificity around data. So I'm going to I'm going to do a, a thought experiment with you Travis. So you don't have to answer out loud but if <laughs> I were to ask you the question what you normally eat I want you to think about that and just take a second. And so mm -hmm. then if I ask you a different question what would you say if I asked you from start to finish yesterday, what did you eat all day? And are the 
answers to those questions the same or different? Interesting. So, so we find this a lot in diabetes clinic. You have someone come in once every few months and you say, what do you do on average? And you don't, it's, it's you know, no fault of anybody's. It's just normal human behavior. You don't get real answers um, because people are guessing and they're averaging and it doesn't actually represent what they're really doing. And so the opportunity with PGHD is to shed light on all of these areas that are invisible and to get real data um, from what people are doing day to day and that what the context of their lives are compared to some of their, uh, some of their health-related uh, behaviors and trends and information. And so I think that uh, those two things, I think, stand out to me as, as really crucial. Yeah, that last point is, is, is sort of fascinating um, because you can think about those questions you ask and what you perceive uh, of yourself, you know, in terms of what you eat, what you drink, all that stuff. And then the reality of of day to day, <laughs> how that's actually applied, um, and the ability to sort of cut through that because you know it's yeah it, it, I, that's really kind of fascinating, um, or at least a fascinating way to think about it. Um, all right, I don't think I have necess- I don't think I have anything else. Um, like I said, I think this has been super informative, and I greatly appreciate you taking the time and you know, super excited to have you on, you know, having, what, what, what was the original, was it Green Dot? What was the original name of Tidepool? Yeah. So before, before it was Tidepool, it was called Green Dot and there, you know, uh, turns out there were trademark issues with that. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I always wondered why that, okay. I didn't know why that changed, but I, I remember I, at first hearing, I think we first connected when, uh, I, it may still have been Green Dot <laughs> before, we, we before did. the naming issues came up fortunately but it changed it, it changed sooner uh in the um uh in the life cycle of the company than i'm sure you guys have had a lot of fun with your recent <laughs> renaming um once you were already a pretty well-known company so you mm-hmm. you've definitely felt that as well yeah it's it's but, uh i mean it's a process for sure but i really appreciate the conversation and um you know enjoy listening to the podcast you've had uh, some really innovative, smart people on. And uh, I think it's a great service you guys are doing to the community to um, you know, push forward information about FIRE, about APIs, about people doing innovative things in healthcare, because those are the stories that are going to help encourage people to build the next great thing. Uh, and that's, that's uh, very exciting for me to see. You've been listening to the Healthcare Innovators Podcast. Subscribe today at datica.com.